Greetings, everyone. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios on a freezing cold Florida Valentine's Day 2022, which means for those of you who don't know Florida, that it went below 60 and we're all dying. Uh, I am joined in the studio today by a much uh, stouter constitution, Ari Pine, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Digital Gamma. Uh, we're delighted to have you here. Ari, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you for having me, Chris, and happy Valentine's Day. Oh, thank you. Sweetest thing I've heard all day. So uh, maybe you could give us a, a, a quick primer on what Digital Gamma does, how you guys pull it together, what you're doing now. Floor is yours. Well, thank you. Um, so Digital Gamma is a proprietary trading crew that um, trades in the cryptocurrency market. So our specialty is derivatives, uh, and, and that has been something that we've been doing for quite a number of years, more than I really care to share. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so that's really uh, our specialty, which is trying to figure out how different, different futures and options trade relative to one another and piece that together and create some interesting opportunities uh, in, in digital assets, which is a nice space to be in. Um, because unlike uh, how people like to say it is traditional finance is so dang efficient. So what you've got in, in cryptocurrency is a far less liquid, less connected, uh, you know, more order driven type of market. And so for the non-traders among us, you know, no normal folks who don't have the, the debilitating trader gene would think that <laughs> predictability and ease are good things, not bad things. But you know, maybe you can explain for people a little bit about why you know kind of newer markets with, with less predictability to pricing are actually good for traders. I think there's a couple of interesting things about uh, digital assets that are worth talking about directly speaking about that. So I think one of them, uh, and I'm sure this is near and dear to your heart, is there isn't a central bank um, that doles out credit. There isn't this very centralized um, sort of control uh, or the, to the same level of regulation uh, that is in the space. So the money supply uh, that's within cryptocurrency is up to all of the people that bring it with them. It's like going camping. You bring in <laughs> what you're taking in and they want, you know, and you should take it out as well. Right. Right. Um, so that, that's a little bit of what digital assets are like. And because of that, that means that sometimes uh, in it. Oh, so apologies, I should also mention that there are a lot of different venues. And because it's still a new space, there hasn't been one uh, monopoly winner or an oligopoly um, of a few companies that are in control. And therefore, when uh, when an order comes in on a particular futures contract or at a particular exchange, it can uh, move the market a little bit more than others. So because of that, that's an opportunity for uh, entrepreneurial folks such as ourselves who think that we can be helpful to the market and provide liquidity. In other words, taking the other side to these trades um, because we have a certain level of expertise, a certain level of access, and a certain level of technology and infrastructure that allows us to see like essentially what looks like a bigger picture and to say that this doesn't, this looks out of line relative to that. So a lot of what we do, or really all of what we do is trading one instrument against at least one other. We don't normally take directional bets in the sense of saying, oh, Bitcoin is going to the moon or ETH is going sideways or any of those things. Our job is to say that one instrument is mispriced relative to another um, because somebody's trying to get an order done. And essentially we provide a service to the market um, that hopefully from our perspective, at least we get paid for. So it's enlightened altruism in some ways. <laughs> so that, that's good. I, I'm going to gloss, I, I, I'm gloss I, Adam Smith there pretty heavily. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I kind of call it beeping boops, but sure. Enlightened altruism. Same thing. Uh, I think what, one question a lot of people have asked me on a, on a, on a less facetious note is, um, you know, traders who are, are standing in the middle of having, you know, run teams in the NYMEX, which is kind of like, you know, hurting convicts uh, in a good way. Um, you know, I was one of them. Like, for example, 
it, joking aside, if you're trading physically delivered markets like oil or natural gas or, or wheat futures, there right. is a fundamental economic activity. There are, you know, Kellogg's needs to buy a whole chunk of wheat to produce cornflakes. And that supply and demand analysis can often drive a lot of trading decisions. Similarly with oil and natural gas, there are real end uses. You take the oil and you, you know, create gasoline with it, things like that. But in a space like crypto where um, they are pretty much untethered from most kind of real world supply demand considerations, how does that or does that make your analytics different from the way you'd approach like gold or, or, or oil markets? Well, I think one could make a pretty reasonable argument that by and large, for the most part, the price of gold in particular, um, yes, there are certainly supply issues, uh, supply constraints in terms of producing gold, as well as certain demand on the jewelry front and, um, and, and also on electronics. But by and large, um, the, the marginal buyer or seller of gold is usually either one of two parties, either an investor or a central bank. Um, and, and so therefore, there's quite a bit, again, in particular, when it comes to uh, gold or other precious metals. As a matter of fact, also, I think when it comes to, by and large, currencies overall, uh, there's quite a bit of what are investors looking to do, whether that is um, from the narrow perspective of I'd like to move my funds <laughs> from the United States into Europe. How am sure. I going to go about doing that? Um, and, and coming up with ideas about what are relative values for currencies, what are relative different differentials in interest rates, um, what is the different purchasing power, what is the outlook for the either stability or um, purchasing ultimate future purchasing power of that currency, right? Is it, um, as gold is often thought of to be, something of a placeholder, right? right? That roughly speaking, that despite the ups and downs that you may have in the short term, that over long periods of time, whether that's decades or centuries, that gold to a certain extent holds its purchasing power. You can exchange an ounce of gold, right? The, the typical example is an ounce of gold buys a reasonably decent suit, right? right. Um, <laughs> so does that hold, you know, from 19th century England, you know, to uh, 21st century Manhattan? Well, I'm assuming we're talking Pret-a-Porter here. We're not, you know, this isn't a Savile Row. I'm just checking. We're, we're, we're talking about suits that I would buy, not that you would buy, right? So these are more pedestrian. <laughs> Yours might be a ten ounce suit. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. We all we all have our different limits. Um, so that's interesting. So the 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 trading dynamics, the analytics that you guys go through in managing your book now, um, your your history prior to this was gold options on on, on trading on the NYMEX, right? Um, among other things as well, I started actually uh, trading debt at J.P. Morgan. Uh, and, and then also um, trading stock options and other equity options um, through, uh, through both a hedge fund as well as being on a different exchange floor right. um, and running a book there and, and doing a few technology things. So the, maybe, the joining of technology and trading is kind well, of... Well, yeah, we'll touch on the technology in a bit because that's, that's critical to both your evolution but also how these markets have evolved, right? But from your point of view, like, is it... Have there been... More, were there more consistencies across those different asset classes trading or were there more differences across trading those asset classes from so stock just options? to be clear when you say those asset classes do you mean like um coming across from debt to equity to commodity yes, historically okay. before before we make the leap to crypto because and then then, then of course the, is it a continuum or does this rep represent a sharply different approach to markets that you experienced before Gotcha. Um, well, I think when you're talking about uh, the debt markets, um, you're really talking about a very large and, and deep market that um, in a lot of ways is very different than even the equity markets. Certainly it was different than the equity markets at the time that I was uh, trading the options in those markets. So I was doing that just um, by way of background in you know sort of the late 90s, early aughts. And so at that time, in particular, when you're when you're talking about single name options as compared to let's say SPX options or meaning index options on widely traded 
stock indices that everybody would be familiar with. Um, you're talking about a very, um, very different landscape, right? It can run the gamut from having very large and somewhat, um, I guess you would say, sort of uh, established stocks, which, which nowadays, of course, would be something like an Amazon or a Microsoft or an IBM or an Exxon, right? And you can contrast that with a lot of the newer stocks that are far less, uh, not only not liquid, but also have less of a history. Um, there's more uncertainty about what their earnings may be, about what their future may hold. And whenever right. there's uncertainty about the future, they're going to trade very differently. Um, I think also one other thing that stitches a lot of these uh, around is, again, going back to something that we spoke about a little bit earlier, which is the Federal Reserve. When I was trading money markets, of course, the Federal Reserve was very much a presence. Right. Um, you know, they would come in and literally ask, where's the market in such and such, right? So if you traded certain markets like treasury bills or certificates of deposits or bankers acceptances, um, which are, I guess, a little bit sort of archaic these days, not treasury bills so much, but um, they would ask to try and find out where the liquidity is and, and maybe where... Um, you know, where they might find some issues that they may want to see in the market. Sure. Um, and so a lot of what happens in particular in fixed income is you sort of have this mathematical mindset of, well, if the federal funds rate or the target interest rate by the Federal Reserve is, you know, nowadays, let's call it just arbitrarily 25 basis points. And if we can project that out, then we can start coming up with a projected curve. Right. And then you can also make certain guesses about, well, if I see this trading at this price and that trading at that price, it has a certain implication for what um, what the Federal Reserve may do. So the entire market, in particular, when it comes to treasuries and fixed income, not so much corporates or high yield bonds, but particularly when it comes to treasuries um, and I would even say mortgages as well, mm. you're really talking about something that's very driven by the Federal Reserve. Right. Um, now, in the past, people used to talk about the spread between 10-year notes and 30-year bonds, um, so which people unsurprisingly call 10s, 30s. Um, and <laughs> so, <laughs> That's tough lingo. Real inside info there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's, um, so what would happen is people started breaking down the curve, right? And you would say, well, there's the overnight there goes out to two year and, and then you have a certain expectation about what those relative levels ought to be. Um, and then you typically say there's twos to tens, which really is very much from a bond traders perspective, the economic curve. Um, and then going out past 10 years where things get harder to predict, um, at least from a fixed income trader standpoint, then you start to talk about, well, what's our inflation expectations? Right. Um, and, and even when you get out there, things can actually get somewhat illiquid and get very driven by, um, by flows in a way that really are not um, the same as what you might find 10 years and in, in. So far um, less fundamentally driven, more reactive to conditional capital flows would be, would be how you look at the later data stuff. Yeah, I, I don't consider myself a real expert, but I do know that insurance companies have certain... Um, uh, certain needs that they have from a duration perspective, right. um, where bonds that are in the 20 to 30 year range um, that, you know, they're a lot of times people are what is called driven by duration, right? right. I, we, we just, we just need something that's a long dated bond. Right. Um, a and, whole and, complicated topic for another time. If we dove into now, we'd be here all night. So correct. that, that, that is, are there similarities between how you looked at those markets and how you look at say crypto markets today, or they just bear no resemblance whatsoever to each other? I would say that they're going to resemble each other at some point in the future. But for the time being right now, um, I would say, um, and I'm saying this from the perspective of not having traded emerging markets, debt and foreign currencies, but to me, that's the way that it feels like. Um, I've recently just finished 
uh, Michael Pettis's book, The Volatility Engine. It was actually written all the way back in, in 2000, 2001, but I think it holds a lot of- but We were still writing on, on, on clay tablets with chisels back then, right? <laughs> I, I actually- In terms of market grunting. development. <laughs> yeah, I was just grunting at that point. <laughs> right, but sorry, what, what, what did Pettis have to say? Well, Pettis has a really interesting take um, on emerging markets. Typically, when people are speaking about emerging markets, they'll often talk about, well, the policies that are being put into place by the by this new leader of the, you know, whatever nation. You know, typically you're talking about, you know, South American or Eastern European or or um, East, uh, yeah, or whatever Africa and so on. And so you've got new leaders there. The often it is perceived that New there Jersey. is that what New Jersey sorry go ahead New Jersey yes, of course. <laughs> um, there's often perceived that that the issues um, that will be of help to these nations really come about um, because of the economic policies or the business friendly policies or or so on that they've initiated sure Pettis has the opposite view he says you know by and large um, investment into emerging markets really is all about liquidity um, in the sense of amounts of money right. at the money center regions of the world, right? So when you think of that, you're thinking about, you know, Europe, New York, London, um, and those money flows, what happens is the money supply starts expanding, they start finding whatever is closest, most closely available, 10-year notes, two-year notes. Um, when that, when that, gets too rich, they'll look into corporate bonds, then high yield bonds. And once that's even picked over, maybe they'll even go to equities or, you know, frequently because of mandate, huh. many, many um, firms are unable to go into a particular asset class. So they may look for bonds elsewhere, meaning emerging markets. So and it's so by asset scarcity and people's original choice of investment, and they keep can't, they can't find anything worth buying at the prices that are available, and eventually they spill over into a new market. That's his main idea. That's ah. his, that that is one of the main ideas. So that's the first main idea, and that that leads into that essentially lesser developed nations or lesser developed countries, whatever you want to call them, emerging markets are more at the whims of money flow than they are of the, the of the economic policies that they're putting in. And that in reality, totally what's that? I buy that entirely. My experience tells me that's entirely true. <laughs> entirely, totally true. Yeah. Yes. Well, I agree with it as well. That that goes with my experience and it goes with the data. Um, and in fact, he, he even he, he's incredibly well read when it comes to all of the studies that he references. And if you go back literally even to like Roman times, you find this sort of thing um, recurring. Yeah. And that what that means, um, if you are in charge of an emerging market country, it means that this is out of your control. Yeah. You can do all of the right things. This argument holds for the Roman silver mines in, in the Maghreb. It's absolutely true. They ran out of stuff to invest in, they kept going farther, they found silver, what became Morocco, and they opened up mines there. Entirely true. Anyway, sorry, go on. And there you have it. And hey, I got it. There you go. <laughs> nothing, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> well, you know, more or less, I, I think there's there's quite a bit of truth in that. Right. Um, and so so that's that's thesis number one. The second thing is that what then ends up happening is the volatility engine is refers to the mechanical process. And when I say mechanical, I don't literally mean mechanics, but the legal requirements that are in the contracts that people have when they have corporate debt or sovereign debt um, that require them under certain circumstances to liquidate assets or, or essentially you know, sell currency or buy currency based on current conditions or raise or lower interest rates if you're a sovereign, right? Hmm. And so you may have, for instance, a, um, a capital ratio. And so if what you find is that some of the loans that you've extended money out in start to go bad, that now that you write that down, you have to go out and raise capital somehow. But in a, at a time when it's hard to raise capital, that isn't an alternative. So instead you have to sell an asset. Right. 
So, so that selling begets so many of these submerging markets. Correct. And so what was once a virtuous cycle as the money came in, um, creating you know a stronger currency and more loans and economic activity, then works the opposite on the way down. Right. And and so that. And then the IMF steps in to issue the coup de grace. I mean, try to fix things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, so, and, and unfortunately, also, um, you know, he points out that it's not, they are not alone in not understanding what the issue is. Because no, if- they've got tons of illustrious company, starting <laughs> with most of their politicians and ours. So uh, how does that, or does that, how, how does that, relate to why or how people get invested into digital assets now? Is it a similar dynamic where they've just run out of equities to buy at a reasonable rate with PE ratios approaching 40 and people saying that makes sense and rational people saying, no, that's insane. And they look for something new or is, or is there a whole different rationale for why people are getting into these digital markets than existed before people thought between bonds, equities, and commodities? Well, I think the first thing is, let's take a little bit about what you said, right? Is that the rationale? And I think that what's really important here is, um, you know, I think it was Mark Twain that said, there's the reason that they give you, and then there's the real reason. Right. Oh, we're li- we've been living through that for the last two years, but that's another topic. <laughs> yeah, you can put a couple of zeros past that, and, right. and I'm with you. Right. Um, and so... <laughs> <laughs> I think up until about... Uh... I think it was 87 AD where it went off the rails. Before that, it was all policy driven. The crash of 87, huh? Chaos. What, 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 was that from the sea peoples that came in post Bronze Age? Well, that was that was when the, the last uh, uh, Hun finally put a knife to uh, the last Roman senator's throat and said, you're done here. I think he said that in Germanic, though. <laughs> Kaput. Kaput, exactly. Yeah, but ever since then, it's been nothing but action reaction like amoeba so yeah so i think it's important to separate going back to digital assets i think it's important to separate the rationale that people talk about um, versus what is actually driving them into the space itself Hmm. and you know given the backdrop of quantitative easing uh and the backdrop of uh you know low interest rates and as you pointed out all of these assets that have gone sky high people have looked for what they're perceiving as hard assets, right? Um, And so again, you know, where's this money, you know, this, this, you know, the great ball of money, right? Right. (laughs) Which was the term for the Chinese buying. Um, So where does that go? Um, How do people take advantage of it? And it eventually spills out into this market. So that's the first thing. And then I would say the second thing is what are the mechanics that force the behavior of the assets and the market microstructure itself, right? When you get into the nitty gritty, why is it that Bitcoin is so volatile or that these other assets can be very volatile? Yes, they're illiquid, but you know, um, they can trade quite a bit. Um, and why is it that they still seem to be uh, not just volatile, um, but also from the perspective of statistics to, you know, have very fat tails. Oh, yeah. Madness. I mean, in terms of you know, kind of traditional asset analysis, it's crazy. I mean, that, that, that's, where the, that's where the trader sees a huge amount of opportunity. But for those who are buying and holding, I mean, it must just, you know, it must drive Maylock's sales to the roof. <laughs> well, there's actually, there's this great meme of, of actually, uh, on the one hand, right, you know, S&P down, you know, one and a half percent. And there's there's all the, you know, the guys on the NYSE holding right. their hands. Losing their minds, right. Yeah. And then there's the picture of, you know, crypto, you know, Bitcoin down 35 percent. And it's Leonardo DiCaprio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the champagne glass. Happy as all hell. Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I remember. Going all Gatsby. I got into a huge, huge argument policy wise with someone I will not name right now because my lawyers haven't cleared it. But a policymaker, and it was around the time of uh, the London Whale. Remember that nonsense? So, yeah. you know, Chris Dodd and Barney Frank, who destroyed the economy with 30 years of bad housing policy and then pinned it on bankers, which was the best you know, public relations judo move of this of the century, as far as I can tell. Most people still bought it, which is nuts. Anyway, 
those two clowns who destroyed the economy and then claimed that the private sector did it, not them, which is artistry of the first water. Um, and in the, after they passed their stupid law, the Brits passed something equally stupid. And then J.P. Morgan, you know, a prop trading book, everyone screamed and yelled because they lost like a billion dollars, right? But it was like a 20 basis point drop. And I, see, I was talking to this guy, I said, how much, if you look at your retail trading on your Ameritrade account, what's the worst your portfolio has ever dropped? And he's like 40%. I was like, that's 800 times more yeah. than what they lost. And why is everyone losing their mind? Well, because the number sounds big and it's politically convenient for the number to sound big. But here, as you point out, cryptocurrencies bounce all over the place and people buy in, they panic, they don't panic, they buy the dip, they cry. It, it seems to be a different psychology. And you know, being in these markets, what is your explanation for that, that post hoc rationalization? It's not so much that it's a post hoc, it's really driven by literally the structure of the market itself. So whereas in, um, again, calling it traditional markets, you're going to have a certain level of leverage and uh, that goes into the market and what retail and hedge funds and all of these different scale of um, investors put into uh, these markets is very different than what's in crypto. So again, you have to think about what sort of environment are we on in traditional markets where you've got Federal Reserve that's in the market, buying treasuries, buying mortgages. Um, you've got basically an entire class of investors that has come of age in that regime where there's a constant bid for, for lack of a better term, from a trading perspective, bid for paper. Right. That's what we would say. Right. It's bid right. for paper. Um, it's it's bid for these different assets. And because it is bid for these assets, it's extremely volatility dampening. Um, literally, if you have, you know, for those that are not familiar with mortgages, um, or at least from the perspective of investing in mortgages, probably everybody's familiar with the mortgage itself. And the mortgage itself is you buy your house and you should be entitled to be able to sell your house or refinance it as you wish, which means that you have an option. Right. And that option happens to be extremely correlated with interest rates, right? If interest rates go higher, you're not going to refinance to cost yourself more money, um, which means that the, the debt that you've taken out is going to last for far longer um, and vice versa. If interest rates drop from seven to three, you're going to want to pay far lower interest rates. And that means that this wonderful, that the, from the investor standpoint, this wonderful 7% note now has gone away and can only be replaced with three right. or three and a half percent of rights in that relationship. Yes. And so that means that, um, that traders can engage that optionality. And the fact that whereas typically in the market, let's say prior to 2009, uh, there was a huge constituency of mortgage buyers. Um, and those buyers would often try to buy the mortgage to earn that option premium, just like people today try to earn the option premium um, by literally selling options. Um, that would be a large part of the fixed income market. Right. But with the Fed coming in, it essentially has come in and just sells options every day. And that the entirety of the combination of asset buying, as well as money printing and you know, stability of interest rates combined with literally outright option selling has created two things. One, a very dampened environment. And then on the other side, basically an endless supply of money. Right, which we're right? seeing the effects of right now. My, I, my most favorite thing, is whenever you go to fill up the gas tank, certainly here in Florida, some genius has printed these little stickers that's Joe Biden, Joe Biden pointing upwards. And it says, I did that. And so people go and just shove it on every gas pump they can, pointing at the price. <laughs> it's absolutely genius. It's so hard to figure out where you stand on these issues. Well, you, you, you know, I, tr so I well. try to leave it a little, little mysterious. I like people to kind of probe and parse. I'd like, I'd like, I'd like it to feel like people listening to Messy Times were like the old Fed watchers who 
who used to carefully listen to Alan Greenspan and try to figure out what the Oracle was saying. I like to be that opaque. I think I'm getting Is that. it the red suitcase? <laughs> the red suitcase. <laughs> I remember we had uh, when I was at JP Morgan. So this is this is this is even pre um, uh, tile and 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 uh, this is all sizzle wars and smoke and writing on deer hides, right? Yeah, this was like, you know, this this was like pre.com. So this was like, you know, the wheel was like the big the big investment boom. And you had this thing on your desk that made this bring bring noise and you were afraid of it. So you just didn't touch it. I, yeah, I remember those, those days. <laughs> so the this number came out and the Fed watcher, JP Morgan, starts talking and he's like, well, there was this, but then there's that. And then there's this. And there's like, I forgot what number it was or whatever. Right. All I know is the 30-year bond trader at some point after he's been going on for about a minute and a half finally goes, do I buy or sell on that news? <laughs> exactly. What are you talking about? Quit trying to keep your job, research nerd. What do I do with this? <laughs> right. It was, it was very funny. Um, so to contrast this very vol dampening environment and also where there's this huge deep bench of different opinions and di- well, probably not different opinions, but different constituents um, that are that participate in the capital markets, mm-hmm. right? There, there's everybody from you know bond funds to opportunistic traders um, to people that are trading relative value. There's just all sorts of various um, entities in the ecosystem that will pick up on assets at various points and that can do so in highly leveraged fashion. Right. So that diversity of viewpoints lends to a fairly resilient market structure because all of those people are not correlated in how they view their trades. A hundred percent. So that's step one. So that's sort of what keeps everything sort of in line on a generic basis. Then when you add the Federal Reserve coming in and making it so that you can lever up as highly as you wish, um, and then as as the volatility dampens more and more, everybody's risk limits on a notional basis go up because people measure them on a volatility basis. So right. it, I know that is a bit of a complicated thing, but essentially it says, if I'm going to lose, if, if I expect that the price is going to move around a lot, I'm going to trade smaller. And if I think the price is going to move around a little, my risk manager says I can trade bigger because the expectation is it isn't going to move that much. That's right. basically what it comes down to. You can say fancy words like value at risk and, and so on, or and risk parity and, and things like that. But that's basically what it comes down to. The more volatile it is, the less size you need to trade right. to make or lose money. And, and, and that, of course, leads to something which I've always found pretty fascinating, which is this, this big word concept of performativity, which is where people begin to observe behavior, derive models from it, start to trade the models, but then that, that it's, like, it's like trying to measure an electron's position, right? Once you begin to use historical data to choose models, to choose how you trade, you then change the patterns of the market themselves. So there's, there's a great book, I can't remember the guy's name, but the title of it was An Engine, Not a Camera. The point being that you can't take- I think that was Michael Pettis too. That, I, don't, I don't think so. I think, it's, I think it's an Irish name like McCarthy or something. Anyway. But that was the same same sort of idea. Like by taking a taking a snapshot of a market, you haven't frozen it in time. <laughs> You've created a model which then affects how the market develops after that, right? So you can't you can't get involved it's like anthropologists to believe. I just sit here and observe. I change nothing. You brought a camera and a bunch of canned goods. Trust me, you change things. <laughs> <laughs> believe me, they don't look at themselves the same way in the world. Where did you come from? Why don't you have any cattle? Right? I mean, there's just so many reasons why observing something changes behavior, whether human or market-based. So with all of that, you're talking about risk controls, of course, you know, back at one of the big banks I work for, we call them the Department of No, right? Compliance or the Risk Management Department. But in, in things like crypto, right, where you've got cowboys who were smart enough, you know, lucky and drunk enough to have bought 60,000 Bitcoin when they were 10 cents, and then just forgot about them and woke up one day in San Juan and found out they were billionaires. You know, that's a different trading dynamic than someone who is trading the firm's money at a big bank. So is there, are there kind of very significantly different trading dynamics in the ecosystem for digital assets? Or are they starting to sort of institutionalize the way equity trading and bond trading already is, even in hedge funds? So I think that there's two parts to that 
um, both uh, thinking about how these markets trade, there actually is a reasonable amount of leverage in the market. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is that unlike traditional markets where there's sort of an endless supply of additional money to pile onto the same trades, right. these trades are because they're isolated, right? You might have, you might be long Bitcoin on, you know, bit trading unit number one, you know, meaning one exchange over here, and then, you know, you're, you're short on another one, but you may get liquidated, right? Because the, the exchanges have very automated uh, processes for liquidation to ensure that they're not going to lose money. Right. Right. So if you as an individual trader get way out of bounds, someone at the exchange literally steps in and gives you positions to someone else to get out of them before the exchange it's, gets it's, hurt. It's even simpler than that, right? You're 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 couching it in terms of floor um, trading. Person, <laughs> right, right. Of personhood and oh, this happened. Now these are all this is all, you know, computertronic thing. This is all Skynet. There's not even a person involved. This is 100% Skynet. Thank you. I feel much more relaxed well because that that worked out well. (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's all, well, what happens is, right, you know, going back to that funny meme of, you know, hey, we're relaxed about this, is the fact that in crypto, it becomes robust to volatility. As a matter of fact, there have been periods where traditional finance has been very robust to volatility, right? You know, everybody nowadays is looking back with longing for, you know, Paul Volcker to come in and. Oh, and- we're about to have another one of those because we've already got a Carter times two. So I wonder who the new Volcker is. That's a good question. Who's going to break the back of this psychotic inflation in the next Republican administration? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not. Um, we're going to get T-bills totally- at 18% again. The what? We're going to get T-bills at 18% again. Look, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Right? Anything's possible. Um, it's, um, yeah, I, I don't know. We're, we're definitely heading into some interesting stuff. What I find so fascinating about this period in history and with the advent of digital assets and their completely non-controllable basis, which drives a certain type of control-free politician out of their minds, right? Just drives them nuts. Because, for example, you know, everyone's been watching those fine, excellent, marvelous friends of ours north of the border who just had enough of this dilettante flake Trudeau and decided to, to have a trucker rally. Good for them. Um, but, you know, crowdfunding sources, GoFundMe raised $10 million for the more people raised. And these idiots just said, no, they shut it off. And what drives them crazy is instantly the crypto community whipped around and raised $6 million worth of Bitcoin that no central government could stop, which is phenomenal from a social standpoint, right? Um, but since most people have very short attention spans, I don't blame them for that. I would too if I, if I, if I could, right? But 100 years ago, Cuba, Argentina, and Venezuela were better sovereign credits than the United States, right? People have this fantasy that we have just always been this very rich nation. I mean, after World War II is really what did it to us. We've since fritted it. But those changing dynamics where... People, as you said, starting with emerging markets, were looking away from home markets they understood because they just couldn't find anything worth it. And you see more and more of, of, of that pouring into crypto, or is it is it still just going to be? Uh, it's growing fast, but it's not growing nearly fast enough to overtake conventional markets in a decade's time. Well, or think it? about the following, right? I mean, I shared a table um, at an event one day um, with a guy, very smart guy. I think his name is Darius. I don't remember his last name. Um, But what he said was Bitcoin or cryptocurrency more generally um, is really a crisis asset. And if you think about that, and if you frame um, what's going on in the world today, right? So separate from any monetary issues, you've got, as you pointed out, um, very much an expert class that is very upset at the class misbehaving. Yes. How, How dare you, you have not listen to us, even though we've never done anything right in our lives that have built nothing but details. And then you've got an interesting geopolitical situation going on, whether that is the South China Sea, 
Taiwan, Ukraine, um, you know, those are big events. And then you think about, well, El Salvador, maybe as a stunt, adopted Bitcoin. Right. Brilliant. Okay. However, rocky road, but an interesting move. It's an interesting move for a couple of reasons. Not only does it try to put something out there uh, in terms of differentiating oneself, um, which is could be just, you know, pizzazz, all, you know, flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting about that is potentially, um, and, that, and as far as I know, they have not adopted as their sole sovereign currency, right? It is and just I think it's, it's- legal tender within the nation right. of itself, yep. right? But if you are such a country and you would like to make a move and say, look, we realize that we're having difficulties. We realize that, you know, the easiest way, right? The, the equivalent of hiring a consultant. I know what I need to do. I don't need them to tell me what to do. I just need the political cover to do it. <laughs> right. I need, I need the 18 page PowerPoint I can point to and said, they said so. It's smart. Hey, right. Hey, right. Rib, rib. Look, just all got just make sure it says this at the end. <laughs> exactly. Right. Whatever. Very, whatever in the middle. Pictures, whatever. Charts. I'd love some charts. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, it may be that somebody adopts that with the intent to, hey, we're, we're, you're going to take us more seriously because we're going to have, you know, a currency board, right? So Hong Kong has, right. has a currency board so that Hong Kong dollars are, you know, range bound pretty tightly to US dollars and so on, right? Or pegs and so on. And I would say that the fantasy is more important than the reality, right? Because not a single European country has ever met the Maastricht criteria, which were supposed to constrain their fiscal policy, tax policy, monetary policy. They signed that agreement and poof, nothing has ever happened and the euro continues to trade. Yeah, the euro, yeah. Sorry, I, inter- I interrupted your currency. No. You're spot on. But I th- but okay, but that actually is a good segue into the next part of what I was going to say is that if you are this other country and you do want to adopt a stability stance, you know, where you want to show that you're making real progress, what would you do? Would you at this point decide that you're going to adopt the US dollar? Would you? God, no. I'd, I'd do a currency basket. I'd choose a broad based basket and potentially you could do a. Currency baskets don't actually trade, though, but you could you could set it up. An analytical proxy would be safer than trusting the clowns of the Fed and Treasury. Yeah, well, the the U.S. dollar has has managed to um, be somewhat of a greased chicken from the perspective of trying to capture the movements of the dollar. Right. Despite the Fed's um, dang this effort to try to weaken the dollar. Right. If you look at somebody like. um, Brent, I God, I can't think. Is it Brent San? No, he's at Santiago Fund. At any rate, he's had this dollar milkshake theory, and what he's basically said is, you know, the dollar will be strong just because it's going to be strong relative to everybody else. And really, it's kind of an interesting theory because it's not really about dollar strength. It's about the fact that so many people, the world is institutional inertia. Right. That was the big win at Bretton Woods. We're going to call the U.S. dollar the reserve currency. Everyone, that's a good idea. And, and ever since then, you can't do without it. Right. So or you, you could do without it. But the amount of effort it would take to re-denominate your oil trades and euros and yuan, everyone really started thinking about it like, all right. I mean, I guess we'll continue. <laughs> I, I disagree with that. OK. So I will push back. I am one of those people that does not believe that there's one iota of reality toward the reason why the dollars the reserve is because um, you know oil is priced in dollars. Dollars are the reserve for the following reason, in my mind: deep and liquid capital markets. Okay. Um, and so what reason. happens is you feel, you know, if you're a euro investor or you are a petrodollar investor or so on. Now, there was a deal where not only were the was the oil supposed to be denominated in dollars, but part of it was they were supposed to keep it in dollars. Right. Oh, yeah. That's so the, that, that's the a big part of it. So, dollar markets were huge for years because they never re onshored. So, so American corporations could deal with their liabilities overseas. And there was a market in those that often varied quite a bit from the value of the domestic dollar. Yeah, that's an interesting point. 
So people came in because, well, from an investment standpoint, they they really like our stock and bond and asset backed and mortgage and corporate and high yield and, and all of these various deep liquid markets where you can trade options and do things that you can do in some countries, but not in all. And you can't necessarily do it in the amount of size or get the same level of funding, which is the second thing. It's a reserve currency because people borrow dollars and they have borrowed dollars to a level that is mind numbing. Right. And because so what there is, is and all those local banks make a fortune off of their foreign exchange translation desk for their local customers. And they do swaps in and out of dollars, which can remain relatively stable relative to the local currency. So the entire system is built upon the institutional utility of the U.S. dollar. And the fact that so much of the market is short, if you thought about it like a stock, the dollar stock is heavily, heavily, heavily shorted. So every time it goes down, right? It gets bid up because people need to repay their debt or whatever. And when the dollar strength goes higher, they're kind of, you know, squeezed uncomfortably in their right. nethers, right? you know, and it causes great pain to them, which actually goes back to the whole emerging market and Pettis thing, which is, and you spoke to it very well as well, when you said, oh, it turned out that way back in the day, I think it was earlier than 1920, but yes, Chile and, and some of these other nations were stronger credits the United States. The difference was the United States only ever borrowed in dollars. That's true. I actually was looking for a contra to that a while ago for some reason. Was there ever, was there ever a time, well, I know U.S. corporates certainly have borrowed. They borrowed in Deutschmarks and pounds in the in mid part of the century. But yeah, the US government's never borrowed, borrowed in foreign denomination. That, that shows and singular that is a, a very counter cyclical policy. Hmm. It means you don't benefit when your currency appreciates, right? but you don't get your face ripped off when it depreciates. Yes, that's every pensioner in Greece. It is what it is, right? And so that is the the solution that Pettis um, teaches, right? So going back to digital assets, you have this situation where, well, what would you like to adopt if you do want to adopt something and you do want to have something that's more, quote, generic, maybe more stable and so on, or maybe it's just more utilitarian, right? We can use smart contracts or whatever. Right. I'm not advocating for that, but I am pointing out that if you were going to do that, would you pick the U.S. dollar? And the answer is maybe not so much because you want to keep your options open right. for, let's say, trade with China. Right. And if you adopt the dollar, who knows? Maybe China's not quite so interested and, you know, presumably a smaller country where maybe they don't have to care. So cryptocurrencies being stateless, I mean, not tied to a nation state. Um, give you the political actor in a given country or even the corporate actor, wherever you are, a greater degree of flexibility. And that's part of, since people are willing to pay for that optionality, in large sense, they're paying for that optionality via the volatility they're experiencing. And so therefore it's rational behavior to accept that volatility because what you're getting in return is the degree of optionality. You know, that, that, that great old line is that markets are really liquid until they're not. Right. Where well, markets so, are that's right. And so markets are really liquid in, until they're not. And that's primarily on the traditional side. Right. Because there's the illusion of that stability because of, again, what you brought up before, which is this reflexivity. Right. So that was Soros's term for for a very similar uh, feedback. Wasn't it great when he was a capitalist and not a socialist? Those were heady days. Heady days. <laughs> Anyway, we're sorry, gonna, I didn't realize I said the S word. We're not going to touch that. That's okay. I, I, I respect what he did in London. I'm not so excited about what he's done in New York. Um, so, well, this this is all fascinating. You have sort of like some final, uh, uh, I wouldn't say cryptic because that's just wordplay that would be too agonizing even for me. But are there any sort of like punchy thoughts you got for people who know nothing about these markets and how would they look at, I can get into NFTs, I can you know get into various cryptocurrencies. What do I look for? 
you know, what, what are the, some of the points that, that as a professional trader, you are guided by that people can find useful in their, in their non-full-time trader lives? I would say, you know, one of the, my guiding principles is that it's very difficult to predict, right? So, which means that, uh, that, that really cuts both ways, right? So for a lot of people that might mean, hey, look, I better own something. Maybe I need to own a basket of cryptocurrencies. Um, and again, thinking back to, well, it's a very high, highly volatile asset class. I can do a smaller amount because it's going to move more. Right. I can also take advantage of the very volatility itself. Right. So as much as I'm not a big fan of Warren Buffett from. Rationality. Non, yeah. I just anyway. Um, he does say a lot of really smart things. And obviously he's done very well trading for himself. Um, but one of the things that he says is, you know, you get to take advantage of whichever Mr. Market shows up in the morning. Right. Or in crypto at any given time, day or night, whether you like it or not. Because it never closed, right? That's one of the it, things. It very never different. closes. And never closed. The, the thing that I don't understand is why people want to open up traditional markets for more hours. Institutional inertia, lack of creativity, um, a sense of comfort, you know, People think exchange traded traded products for some reason are like a safety blanket and the OTC markets are crazy. I don't know. But you know, it's very simple. For anyone who feels that way, don't get into these markets is the easy answer. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because on the other hand, you have a lot of advocates these days for illiquid assets because, well, they don't get marked to market. So I can just put my head in the sand and not know what it is and not have the ability to get out. But you know, it's private equity, so it just keeps going up. Yeah, right. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, that's yeah. Of course, they always go up. <laughs> that's that's excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, all right. So, <laughs> so 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 no particular guidance aside from you know, buyer beware and. Yeah, I I'm mean, not, I'm not asking you to give, give trading advice. That's absurd. But like, you know, are there? I guess the last question is 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 is, is you can if you can answer it quickly. Does this represent an entirely new? paradigm of investment experience in terms of how these things move there's there's not enough of a, of a historical track record for there to be any degree of confidence like you can't see with equity it's like over time it goes up six percent right which tends to track with it with it with economic growth population growth the rest of it with crypto things like population growth and employment numbers are irrelevant so you know is it just really this whole new thing that people can either choose to experience or just sit and watch I think it represents a, a very big paradigm change in the sense that the whole point of what it is, certainly Bitcoin was meant to address is to have its own payment system where I can trust you and you can trust me and we don't need a bank um, to, to move the money back and forth for us, that right. we can do it on our own. It was meant to be a proof of concept it really outgrew that proof of concept, right? It, it went viral is essentially what happened. Right. Um, and whether or not things that have smart contracts will be the future and whether, you know, there will be full DeFi where entire exchanges are decentralized and don't require a corporation to run or a trusted third party in that sense um, has yet to be determined. And I think you also have to, you know, especially look at all those books you have behind you, right? So that's fantastic. Best wallpaper um, ever bought. Looks really good too. It gets shadows and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, the books upon which that wallpaper was based. <laughs> the books on which the wallpaper was based. Oh, now, now, I'm, now I feel inclined to prove it. <laughs> well, it works. <laughs> I, I have a couple too. <laughs> um, so... If you think about like one thing that was very new to me was, like you said, stateless before. Right. Um, how closely tied money and law are. Right. And that was something that I hadn't ironically had not really given a lot of thought to, because up until you separated money from a sovereign state, why would you bother thinking about it? 
right? You didn't right. think about, oh, you know, we can pull this apart. And then, you know, really when somebody is saying it's money laundering, it's really saying they're doing something we don't particularly like right now. Yes, exactly. Which exactly. can change over time, right? So when they busted Silk Road, you know, part of it, I mean, there were other things as well. Um, but one of the things was they were selling marijuana. Yes. Well, these days, is that a problem? For the feds, it still is, though for 30 states, it's not. Um, you, raise, you raise a good point. I was on a, on, a, on a show last week where one of the guys defined misinformation as truth they don't want you to hear, which I loved, right? Because we already have a word for something that's not true. It's a lie. It's a great word. But you'll notice the powers that be don't say Joe Rogan's lying. No, no, because he's not, right? He's just having a chat with people. Um, and I, I, I laughingly said that, you know, I, I want Messy Times to be as prominent on Spotify so that Neil Young declares that he won't play his music on the platform as long as Messy Times is still on the platform. I'm not there yet. That's one of my goals. Yeah. So my, my new phrase is the only speech that needs protecting is the speech I disagree with. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, no question. Last thought. Last thought to run by you. I've been seeing a bunch of, uh, of course, in some ways I'm talking about my own book here, but uh, innovations in finance, seeing, you know, folks who like me did a lot of structured finance and physical commodities, it now seems perfectly logical that we've got this brand new delivery mechanism, which is more efficient, you know, consensus-based, trustless, all that sort of stuff, not tied to a country's laws. Um, how much are you seeing in the advent of sort of commodity or hard asset-backed uh, either NFTs or tokens or stuff like that. Are you seeing more and more of that come into the market or is it still early days novelty? I don't have a good answer for that. That isn't my area of expertise. But what I can say about that is that um, that's almost essentially one of the best uses, right? The, the whole point of a blockchain is to have a um, trustless or you know, trusted process to verify provenance. Right. Um, and so if that is for commodities, that's great. Um, if, you know, I'm sure all of your listeners, uh, maybe not all, but a good chunk of your listeners, I'm sure have, have paid for title insurance. Right. Right. Which is absolutely absurd, right? It's insane. I mean, America is an anachronism. I mean, I know friends in New Zealand and Australia are like, are you out of your mind? The government maintains a database. That's it. That's the golden copy. No one can, as happens constantly in America, like your great aunt Tilly dies and leaves a brownstone and you, you, you guys don't get around to going and visiting for nine months. You show up, the locks are changed and someone's living there. <laughs> what happened? Well, I own this. What do you mean you own it? I bought it. Who do you buy it from? Right? That stuff happens all the time. And that's what title insurance is for. Right? It's absolute madness that this country still maintains that inefficiency so that we need title insurance. I'm sorry, I made your argument for you. You're Correct. Different. But then we could have this entire thing where you don't have to have title insurance and you don't have to have you don't have to necessarily worry about a government that may not be responsive or whatever. Right. You can have this literal public database. Right. That is, you know, that anyone can access that we can add and that there are, you know, presumably nodes or, you know, people that go through the math and that when they get submitted can can verify it or whatever, right? And then it becomes accessible to more or less anyone. It'll probably be more like ETFs where there's sets of associated, you know, um, sure. you know what I'm saying, APs. Yes. But it does make sense, right? Because that's, and, a lot, and, and I, that last thing we touched on, I think is important. Most people don't understand what trustless means, right? Right now, in this example, right? I trust my local court or whoever is the records keeper, but that can be violated by a smooth talker who shows up with forged documents and says, no, now I own this property, right? Um, but there's only one source. You just have to pervert that one source, whether through corruption or dishonesty or fakery or whatever you do. But with a trustless system, thousands of people get to validate that in fact that transaction happened. And as long as 50% 50, 50 plus one say, yes, that's the real transaction, it happens, but you can't in that model as someone trying to steal your Antilles brownstone, there's no way they can even identify, never mind find, never mind convince thousands of people on a node network to lie in their favor. There's no upside for them. 
right? And that's part of the power, power of these networks, which again, drives governments crazy because they also don't have an off switch. Yeah, well, there have been, uh, like there, there is a bit of controversy these days because of something called minor extractable value. That is a totally esoteric thing, but essentially it comes down to some of the same issues that you're talking about, but at a very low level of code. Right. Um, not so, this is not for Bitcoin, but more like on more of the smart contract. And really it doesn't impact what ultimately happens, but there's a, miners can choose what order to make transactions. And because of that, that might change the value uh, for the miner itself. So, but this is at the level of, of machine code for people who write in binary and those jocks who are like, I write in binary, I don't even use ones. Um, <laughs> right, because Microsoft patented the one. Um, <laughs> can't use it, can't use it. If you don't pay, you don't pay the toll, you can't use it. <laughs> it's, it's actually interesting that you put it in exactly that phraseology, which is, you know, in binary code. It's actually not binary code. And that has actually been a bit of an issue because people, um, people that are far more expert than me have had some questions about solidity, which is the name of the language that is usually used in these cases yep. and how it does produce binary code. Um, but yeah. Which would arguably <laughs> be an ironic name for it. If in fact, if it doesn't work accurately or it can be perverted. And there's that. On that note, Ari, thank you so much for, for, for coming on the show. Deeply appreciate it. I'm sure we'll get lots and lots of questions. I will funnel to you for, uh, to flood your inbox and then you can answer them back one by one in deep long prose, which I assure everyone he will do. Um, but any, any party thoughts, final thoughts? Uh, happy Valentine's day. Love the flag. <laughs> happy Valentine's day. <laughs> and may it come to you digitally. Yes. <laughs>